our last teachings on the book of Revelation, just to summarize, uh, had to do with a close look at the, the way the city is described, the New Jerusalem. And it's variously described as a city, a woman, and we're about to see as we go forward in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation, we're about to see that it is described also as the dwelling place of the Lamb, the dwelling place of the Almighty, and their descriptions of this city that are more like a person uh, than they are about buildings. Now this is not at all a surprise because all along from the beginning of Scripture, Genesis, from early in the book of Genesis and now all the way through to the book of Revelation, we know that God is establishing for Himself a dwelling place. And as I have said in other messages on the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a culmination of all of Scripture. But it's a culmination in a way that sees the invisible become the visible. It sees the natural give way to the spiritual. It sees types and shadows that are by definition and in early references material, yield up the secrets of these material references to, to, to not only include but to embody a spiritual reality. The duality in creation is that there is both natural and spiritual and they are typified by heaven and earth. But beyond heaven and beyond earth, which are both created realms, there is the eternal. And so the created realms of heaven and earth demonstrate the fluidity of God in that He can dwell simultaneously in the natural while being uncontained at all in the natural. So the reference to spiritual things is the indication that the versatility of God is He may choose to be contained or contain Himself by, by way of endowments, gifts, and even His person, the Holy Spirit, within the limited being of human beings. But even when He does that, there is an unlimited component of the human being that ties into, connects directly to, and is part of the invisible realm. That component of being is called His Spirit. The spirit of man is very much uh, akin to and like 
the nature of God who is spirit. In fact, the derivative, the source of the derivation of the human spirit is God Himself. So within, enclosed within the formal limitations of human flesh, we have both the eternal and the natural working as one. Obviously, the outcome of this duality is that the flesh is allegorical to the spirit. The spirit is the greater reality. And whenever the spirit and things of the spirit, whenever the the invisible realm comes into the visible realm, it asserts its own hegemony. What I mean by that is uh, it, it becomes the dominant realm and it becomes the dominant reality. In many ways, I'm somewhat summarizing the overarch of Scripture, although it it won't be a complete summarization simply because there are too many components to be so easily summarized. But the principle is unmistakable. At the beginning, God intended to create a man in His image and likeness so that he may have a dwelling place of an eternal construct. In the natural, God dwells within uh, within the human being, the natural form, they are the containers of both spirit and soul. Human form contains the human soul, which allows the human soul to interact with the natural world and also to interact with the human spirit. The human spirit exclusively interacts with the Spirit of God. All of this is working to a final state of being. That final state of being is a corporate man, a corporate entity in which God Himself consents to come and dwell. And indeed God may dwell in such an entity because it is by definition spirit. It is not limited then by time, space or the realms of of creation, heaven and earth. So eventually the distributions of this reality found in heaven and found in earth will come together, will congeal when heaven has been emptied out of everything that God established in creation, in, first in the heavens, to come into the earth. And when that occurs, two major occurrences will, will happen. The nexus, the coming together of heaven and earth in one realm creates a new thing that is greater than either heaven or earth. When heaven has been emptied out of all the promises that now are contained in heaven and they come into the earth, the earth will be made different than it ever was. Even before man fell, a new, an altogether new realm 
and that realm may be described as both new heavens and a new earth, but not in comparison except in reference to the old heaven and the old earth because the intent of God Himself who now retains His place outside of these realms of heaven and earth, holds heaven and earth within the breath of His hand and in fact all of heaven and earth are in God. Now when this new configuration occurs, it will be the eternal but no longer in time and space. The lead up to that eventuality is called the millennium. When the millennium has served its purpose, like when the age of man serves its purpose, God will have the makings of a dwelling place when, heaven, when, when time ends, when the age of man yields the fruit for which the age of man exists, God will have a people. The millennium is the finishing of the, that people by the choreography of learning to be minutely obedient to God in the matter of rule. Presently, obedience to God is the exercise of our will and when we learn obedience to God, here I'm not talking about obedience to unrighteous authorities, bullying husbands, misshapen governments and such things. No, I'm talking about obedience to God, by the Spirit of God. Then you are conformed to the likeness of Christ. Christ was cut off in the middle of the week according to the prophecies of Daniel, so His rule on the earth was truncated. He demonstrated on the earth mainly, mainly obedience to the Father as the perfectly obedient Son. But His destiny was always to rule. So in the prophecies about Jesus, looking through His genealogical record, we see the inevitability of Him being the King. The millennial age is when He is actually the King and the, rule, uh, the role of kings is to rule. Now in ruling, He will present the righteousness of God in the, as the standard of rule and those who have submitted to His rule now in this time of man, of mankind, will also rule and reign with Him because they will have learned obedience by the things they suffered. They will have been choreographed, their, their lives would have been measured by the standard of divine obedience. So they would have been, their, their, their behaviors would have been made compatible with and identical to the outcomes 
associated with being subject to the rule of a rod of iron. While they're here, while whoever obeys God, I use the word we in connection with that, because all who are like Christ have that mandate, have that heart, have that desire. So if we are subject, if we subject ourselves now to the rule of Christ over our own souls and over our circumstances, we will have learned the way of life that results from being under the rule of a rod of iron. At the return of the Lord and the establishment of the millennial reign and rule of Christ, we will no longer need to be subject to or or, uh, uh, choreographed, to use a, a, a dance term or movement term, we will have been choreographed, our lives would have been choreographed to that the righteousness of a rod of iron. So the result of an obedient son will have been achieved and attained by some. The rest will be subject in the millennium, as I've said before, to the finishing work of that rod of iron, because before you may go on to rule with Christ, reign with Christ in the coming ages, beyond the millennial period, the prerequisite is that one is absolutely of the same mind as Christ. Ruling, unless you are the source of the authority to govern, ruling is carrying out the dictates of another. So it's delegated authority. Everyone who rules and reigns with Christ then participates in the rule and reign of Christ by delegation of authority. So to be absolutely obedient to His rule is not discretionary, it's mandatory, but not in the way you might think of a mandate, which is slavish obedience, because if your lives have now come to be hidden with God in Christ, His appearing is through you, and the ultimate glory of His appearing is upon your face, so you are revealed with Christ. Now, if anyone truly believes in the Lordship of Jesus Christ so as to obey Him implicitly, what happens to the spirits and souls of such persons? They become like Him. They have His mind. They have His desires. They have His character. They have His goals and are eager to put Him on display as opposed to those who have maintained their their desires to be independent of Him, in which case they're still subject to their lusts, 
lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And that lust competes with the righteousness of God. So what I'm saying is that those who actually obey Christ, learn obedience by the things they suffer, that process makes them to be like Him, like Him in nature, character, function, purpose, all of it. But it also renders a result, that result being that you may carry the glory of God. There is no greater, no higher order in creation than that which carries the glory of God. Listen, Satan who functioned before God as one, as a servant who carried praise, so desired this role of actually carrying the glory of God, which is to have your bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit so that He dwells in you and Christ dwells in you in the richness and fullness of His entity, of His being, indeed God incarnate, that's the highest order of creation. That is the centerpiece of what God left for us, of what Christ left for us when He returned to the Father as He spoke in the book of John, the 17th chapter. Father, He said, the glory You have given to Me, which glory was the glory of exact representation when the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in the bodily form of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That glory, not the glory He had with the Father before the foundations of the world, He returned to that glory as very God, as God Himself, God the Word. But God the Son, which is another manifestation of God the Word. God the Word was the preeminent glory of Christ. When He came into the world, He came as God the Son to carry the glory of obedience and mostly the glory of representation. Those who submit to His rule and obey in this life are made to be like Him, like He was in this world. He said it Himself, as I am, He said, so shall you be in this present world. That's the goal of those who are born again, born again of the Spirit. The goal is by the time you die, your life will reflect an absolute obedience to Christ, so much so that He will appear when you appear. You will appear with Him in the glory of His appearing and the world will see you as the light, like they saw Him as the light of the world. Now, doesn't mean they'll receive you, doesn't mean that um, they'll laud or honor you, no more perhaps than they lauded or honored Him, in fact, they crucified Him. 
But if they did that to the master, you might expect they might do it to, the, to a servant as well because the servant is not greater than his master. But at the end of this life, for those who are born again of the Spirit, you enter, the destiny is to enter the millennial period having been made to conform to the likeness of Christ. Therefore, the millennial period, the thousand year period that begins with the return of the Lord, that's what I mean by the millennial period, in which time he, he continues he continues to empty out heaven of that which is precious in heaven. <laughs> I know that the goal of most believers is to go to heaven and the doctrine of the rapture is about going to heaven when you die so you'll escape the terrors that come upon the world at the end of the age. But listen, even if you go to heaven before uh, the return of the Lord, He's going to bring you back with Him. The most precious thing in heaven and on earth, the most precious thing in all creation is that entity known as the body of Christ. And the whole body of Christ is both in heaven and on earth. Heaven holds no particular glory once the body of Christ returns with the Lord when He comes back. Now, many things that are already in heaven or that once were in heaven have moved into the earth, came into the earth. For example, the greatest of these glories of heaven was the person of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He came into the earth and attained to the highest glory, that glory of obedience. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation. He returned to heaven to to manage the progression of the revelation of His person in the earth and sent the Holy Spirit Himself to establish the message and the reality of what His coming into the earth led to. And the Holy Spirit remains in control of that. And finally, when the body of Christ in the earth has come to that place of manifesting and displaying the glory that Jesus accomplished when He was here, then both that which is called the bride in conjunction with the Spirit and in unison and union with the Spirit will say to Jesus, the work you established in the earth has been done. Come, Lord Jesus. Then heaven will see the exit of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints in heaven. They'll come out of heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the great throne of the authority of God in creation, upon which throne sits the only qualified person in all of heaven and earth, the Lamb seated on the throne, but now as the Lion, the Overcomer, will also come out of heaven. If you think about it, what then remains in heaven of value? So the foolishness of man, when he thinks of the relationship to God as going to heaven when he dies, is that he doesn't understand the purpose for creation itself. Purpose for creation, heaven and earth were created, was to yield up to God at the end of the period of creation, to yield up to God a people for the dwelling of God Himself. Now the book of Revelation and the 21st chapter in particular speaks of what that people look like corporately. So it's described inevitably as the city of God that is the bride of Christ, that is the dwelling place of the Lamb, and over into the 21st chapter, actually in the end of the, toward the, in the 22nd verse, it says that there was no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And again, and the city has no need for the sun, the moon to shine, for the glory of God eliminates it because the Lamb is the light. And the nations are gathered in, in this city. This city, 12 by 12 by 12,000 furlongs, the numbers are unmistakably referential to the government of God, the perfect, complete sphere of divine authority. And they represent the promise that Jesus was given time and again in the Scriptures, where the first Psalm being one of the most notable passages in that regard, that says, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Ask of me and I'll give you the kingdom, the ends of the earth for your possession. So at the end then, when nations are gathered together in a configuration described collectively as a city, the bride, the new Jerusalem, and the reference to Jerusalem being the character of peace, you're going to find then that the city is measured the, walls are me- the wall is measured, the gates are measured, the people are measured. That's what I want to pick up when we come back. I want to talk about the measurements of the city and why. What are these measurements? What do they indicate? If you'll join me when we come back, we'll talk about that. I'm Sam Solon and we'll continue our discussion. See you then. Bye now.